I'm Amber Harper from the Burned In Teacher Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, leader of learning. When it comes to professional development, wouldn't you want to save money and choose PD that meets your needs? Midwest Teachers Institute offers the most affordable, state-accredited graduate courses on the market for salary enhancement, state certification, and continued education with no hidden fees. With classes designed by professionals active in their field, you get practical tips to help you improve what you do best. Sign up for a class and see why they truly are teachers helping teachers. Visit MidwestTeachersInstitute.org and enter the coupon code LEARNING at checkout to save $30 off your first course. That's MidwestTeachersInstitute.org and coupon code LEARNING. People going back to school seems like an ex- a, just a big science experiment. Welcome to Devil's Advocate, a leader of learning podcast series. Join co-hosts Rochelle Denae-Poth and me, Dan Krinas, as we tackle trending topics in education from all angles backed by sound research where no topic is too big or too small, and where you can be part of the action. Let's dive right in. All right, welcome to episode one of the monthly series, Devil's Advocate. I am here with my lovely co-host, Rochelle. And if you're not familiar with Rochelle, before she introduces herself, uh, let me just say it's been a while since we have actually recorded here, but Rochelle was a guest way back on the Leader of Learning podcast. If you've been a listener uh, since... 2017, I guess, Rochelle was probably one of the first, uh, if not five, definitely the first 10 guests on the show. Uh, So I'm welcoming her back, but now on a monthly basis as we do this Devil's Advocate series, and we'll get into it in a minute, but I would uh, introduce Rochelle, and I have introduced Rochelle recently as the hardest working woman in education. That's what I believe. She's shaking her head. I don't know. That's what I believe uh, because she she just works so hard at everything she does. Uh, Rochelle, talk talk to the listeners about what it is you do and introduce yourself. Well, yeah, I do shake my head at that because I hear that a lot. Uh, So my name is Rochelle Denae Poth. I am a Spanish STEAM teacher, Spanish and STEAM teacher, I should say, and uh, also a consultant and attorney and author, all related to education, I guess, in some form. So love learning. But yeah, I keep myself pretty busy with uh, just constantly learning or doing something. I just feel like there's so much out there and I don't want to miss anything, especially if it's something that could help somebody else. So that's what kind of keeps me just going to read and to learn and to listen and connect and all of that. So yeah. And contrary to what people think, I I do in fact actually sleep sometimes. So that's good. But yeah, that's good. good. Awesome. And, uh, you know, we're Rochelle and I are excited to bring you this monthly series called Devil's Advocate, where we're going to tackle trending topics in education. And, and really the idea behind this is to take a look at topics from all angles, uh, you know, looking at topics that have uh, both sides, you know, a, a pro and a con or multiple sides in terms of uh, stakeholders who are involved, educationally speaking. And uh, of course, the trendiest of trending topics right now is 
reopening schools. Clearly, since March, schools have looked very different across the United States. Uh, many or, or really all had had gone to a whatever you call it, virtual learning or distance learning model. But now as we try and prepare for the school year coming up, whether it starts in uh, a few days, I think for, for some schools or a few weeks like uh, us here in the Northeast in America, um, we're, we're definitely looking at some different models and we're definitely looking at schools that are going to seem pretty different from what everyone is used to. So uh, that's what we want to talk about today. And, and again, um, we might put our thoughts and opinions out there, but we really want to stick to what the research says and, and back up what we are saying with actual research and data so that we keep our listeners informed. And uh, speaking of keeping our listeners informed, Rochelle, before I come to you again, I did want to let you and our listeners know that they can actually take part in the conversations or at the very least suggest topics for us. Uh, there is a Flipgrid out there. It's, it's flipgrid.com slash devil's advocate, or you can go to leaderoflearning.com slash devil's advocate and let us know what you think chime in, uh, you know, give us your, your thoughts and, and opinions and comments and concerns about what we are talking about, uh, but also definitely, definitely suggest topic ideas that we discuss here every month on the show. Sounds so good. reopening schools, what do you think? Ooh, uh, I think that that is something that just in the past, I mean, we've been talking about it for ever since the prior school year ended, just thinking about what's it gonna look like when we reopen. But now just even in the last week or two, as schools are making their decisions or states are coming to make decisions for the entire state, lots of conversations, uh, some positive, some negative and everything in between. Uh, it's interesting to see how some schools are adapting to it and actually schools that have already opened that now have to close or have mass quarantine because students have come in or faculty has come in. So it is, it's something that there's not one right answer or an easy answer for. I know um, just, just friends that I have that have smaller schools, rural areas where they're not seeing a problem and they're back to school and it's, like things are kind of normal in a sense, but for larger districts and even my district, I mean, things, plans had to change really quickly uh, to accommodate everything that's happening in the area. So I don't know. It's a, it's a topic I think we're going to have a really good discussion about today for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to start, I I'm going to put myself out there and say that, that I don't hate the idea of reopening schools. Uh, there's a catch there. I, I don't like the idea of reopening schools full force, full time. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Uh, I like the idea of going back. I don't like the idea of sending everyone back all the time. However, uh, I do think that it all of that depends on wh where you live, you know, what your area is looking like in terms of the level of cases at this point. Um, I can speak for myself. I'm, I'm here in Connecticut and where once it, back in March and April, our area in, you know, I, I live very close to New York. So uh, the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut was kind of the epicenter of the of the pandemic, uh, at, at least here in, in this country. Uh, it is not now. And we're actually doing some of the best jobs at keeping cases low. So I, I say that I know and I know people out there might disagree. And that's why I want to you know support it with with facts. The facts show that right now our area is potentially doing the best. 
of many areas across the country and our schools are ready to go back in person. The district where I work, we're doing a hybrid model and we're only bringing back up to 50% of students at a time. Where I live, however, right now they're saying everybody's going back. And so um, because cases are low, and this is where I think school districts need to be careful when they plan, um, right now because cases are low, that's the model. But of course, if that changes and cases go up again, we have something else to go to. Yeah, and it's interesting. One of the things, thinking back to, well, back in March when schools closed, one common thing that I've heard so much from educators is so many schools closed when we didn't have as many cases or there wasn't such a big problem. And now that there is that problem and there are so many more cases, now schools are thinking about opening. And it's like, how do you... Kind of, I mean, some of the saying justify that, but yeah, I, my school was going to be hybrid and have it split between two groups of students and they would go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was full asynchronous for everybody for cleaning. And then Thursday, Friday was a different group and every week was going to be like that. And then the plan changed to move to the first nine weeks being fully virtual. So a big shift in planning. Uh, even in the school district that I live in, I can't recall exactly what the plan is, but I know that students, I think, are only going to be in the classroom for maybe two of the days and the rest is going to be online through Google. And a lot of a lot of parents, a lot of things that I see being posted on Facebook specifically are really upset with that decision by the school board to make, you know, everybody's going to be hybrid or whatever it is. And uh it's hard. And that's a, that's a big school district. But when you look at all the considerations between the spacing in the classrooms and the busing and all, I mean, just all that has to go into it, that is that is not a decision that I would want to have to make for sure, because you can't you're not going to make everybody happy. And uh, which I don't know when you actually can do that anyway, but yep. just taking and valuing. I think the important thing is like listening to all the concerns and valuing everybody's opinions and all of that and just being able to have that conversation and navigate through it and decide what is the best when you have all of those factors before you to make your decision on. And and that's why I wanted to discuss this with you here. And, and I find it apropos to, to bring up on the first episode of our series, uh, because there are different camps out there, right? And, and I think that's um, reflected in kind of the three different models that most districts seem to be at least toying with to start the school year, which is in person, hybrid and then full distance learning and and it seems like people are in one of those three camps and um and it varies of course uh depending on sort of which type of stakeholder you are i know a lot of parents and i'm not trying to generalize because clearly there are some outliers here um but i ju i'm just you know from what i know uh from where i sit i do see a lot of parents who are supportive for the most part of returning having their kids return to school so that would be either in person or at least hybrid uh of course there are some who are saying i don't think it's safe enough i'm still going to opt for my kid to stay uh at, at a distance and and learning from home uh and i think one of the biggest pieces of information out there that parents and, and educators might be using is, I don't know if you've seen this recently talking about the research, I'm looking at the American Academy of Pediatrics report, it's in front of me right now, and uh, recently a report came out about how many 
children, and I'm not exactly sure what a child is in the eyes of the American Academy of Pediatrics, but I'm going to assume that it's kids who are under the age of 18. Uh, that's, I'm assuming. Okay. So that's not from the pediatric association. That's just from me, but whatever they consider to be a child. Okay. Here's, here are the statistics I'm looking at. And these were reported on July 30th, three, uh, 338 or almost 339,000 total child COVID-19 cases were reported. And that is representative of uh, in terms of being 8.8% of all cases uh, in this country. And so basically what that boils down to is 447 cases per 100,000 children that are that's total across the population. And that that spans the entire time they've been gathering this uh, this data. But recently, and we're talking about... Uh, July 16th through the 30th. So the last uh, two or so weeks in July, nine over 97,000 new child cases were reported for a 40% increase in child cases. Now, I don't know what that is due to. I just know that that's fairly alarming uh, to have all of a sudden a 40% spike in cases among children in just a two-week span that was you know, only a couple weeks ago. And that potentially, like you said, school districts and states and, and you know, agencies that are governing what schools are doing may be looking at that as a reason why they're getting nervous about sending kids back full-time. Yeah, I read uh, I read that exact same thing that you were just talking about last night, and I was surprised at the number for that span of those two weeks, how high it was. You know, there wasn't more information than I saw with that, but it's interesting to see those numbers and to think about how many times over the past week where they've been talking about, well, children don't spread it or they're not likely to get it or whatever the conversation is based on their age range and all of that that ties into it. And I know that I think that I read that there were like 1.5 billion students from preschool to higher education that were out of school during the time of the closures. And then looking also at some of the countries abroad that have started to do some phased reopenings and how they've done that. And it ties back into uh, another thing that I read too about the younger students. And I think with the American Academy of Pediatrics was looking at how much of an impact it has on younger students when they're not in school. And I know that I read something maybe yesterday where the, I'll just call that, what is it? The AAP and <laughs> make it a little bit easier, changed a little bit of what their initial kind of recommendation was based on those numbers, based on other trends, based on other considerations. And so it's very kind of fluid. I think they had a report that came out in July or middle or end of June. And then sometime in July, it kind of changed because then they're starting to see these cases and they're starting to see the different numbers. And um, yeah, I think they did call for an in-person schooling back at the end of June. And of course, a lot of people were kind of alarmed at that. Like, how can you say when all of this is going on? But then uh, that's kind of changed a little bit more as we've seen numbers come in and different cases. I mean, just even in the last couple of days, I've seen some articles about young children who've tested positive, um, children who've passed away because it, it in their young age in different states. So lots of things to consider for sure. You know, a couple, I have a couple thoughts about what you said. First of all, uh, as it relates to the AAP, um, 
it, it did. It, I think it did seem like for a while that there were sort of two camps in, in, in rival um, organizations where the AAP was advocating for a return in person, while the CDC was saying, I'm not sure uh, that schools can reopen <clears throat> unless they adhere to all of these guidelines, which uh, when we read the, that list way back in, I think it was June or July, it, it seemed daunting to say the least about all of the precautions that schools needed to take. You know, I'm reading here again on the AAP website, at this time, it appears that severe illness due to COVID-19 is rare among children. However, states should continue to provide detailed reports on COVID-19 cases, testing, hospitalizations, and mortality by age so that the effects of COVID-19 on children's health can continue to be documented and monitored. And I think that's important to bring up because I've definitely heard, especially educators and even parents, saying that sending people back into schools right now seems a lot like a lab experiment, that we're guinea pigs or that we're lab rats and that it's essentially to gather data on how this virus affects children because they don't know enough yet. Um, and I don't know that that's the best idea or not to just send people back and say, hey, let's keep reporting on the numbers so that we can really study how the how the virus affects kids. But uh, it, I know that in a lot of case, in a lot of ways out there, it really does seem like people going back to school seems like an ex a, just a big science experiment. It does. And that's just watching, again, just the conversations happening on Twitter, on Facebook or anywhere, uh, just people who are back in school and in their communities or in their states or whatever, they're sharing what's happening and just showing. And then you see the comments where it's like, see, this is why we shouldn't have hurried up and gone back to school, or this is why we needed more time. And this is why we should have delayed the school year. And something else that I had read uh, a couple of days ago, I think it was talking about a study that had been done in I want to say Korea, where they looked at, I don't know, maybe 65,000 people or something like that. And they came to the conclusion that the young people do, in fact, catch it and spread it. And children under the age of 10 are half as contagious, but still just looking at that number. So then going back to the AAP, wanting young students to be in school, which we can get into the whole discussion about why it is valuable and more critical for them. And I, uh, I read a blog from somebody probably about a month ago where they were analyzing, this is what I think the plan should be for school reopening. But um, thinking about the benefits for younger students, but then looking at the numbers too, it's like, you think, okay, we can do this, but then you see cases on the rise or specific, I don't know, environment, settings or something like that, that kind of, trip. I don't even know what all goes into it, but just thinking, yep, we can start school. We can put everything in, in, into, I can't even think what the word is. <laughs> we can set everything up in our classrooms. We can follow the precautions, but there's still so many unknowns that, that come into play with it. And uh, then of course we can go back and talk about responsibilities. Are people wearing masks? Are they social distancing beyond the classroom? Because that's another concern. We can't always just, I mean, normal school anyway, we can't control everything that our students do and interact with in their lives beyond the school day. So now what do we do? Mm -hmm. 
I think I just so, opened up a whole other conversation. Well, well you kind of did. And, and I actually want to follow that a little bit. But um, just to address what you just said in terms of like, we can't control everything that the kids are doing. Um, I, I do want to say that we, the, the summer camp that I've done now for the past uh, four years, we did open up this summer. And we, we are governed by uh, a, a county a health department here, actually in New York. And again, because cases are very low here, the health department said, you know, here are the guidelines. You can open up, but you have to keep kids cohorted in gr small groups. Uh, that cohort needs to travel together. You can't, you know, mix and mingle and stuff. And I think we, we did that very safely. So again, one of the reasons why I'm okay with schools reopening, but not sending everybody back full force, I think that as long as we are able to follow those guidelines, um, I'm okay with it. But I do want everybody to know that in my experience with quote unquote reopening of camp, uh, children, campers were not required to wear masks. A lot of them did. But the ones who did even weren't wearing them every minute of every day. Of course, they took them off to eat. But, you know, even in their activity periods, even in their classes, uh, they were taking them off. We tried to keep them as distanced as possible. But I I'm going to admit it, it really didn't work. And, and that's not necessarily to fault anyone at the camp adult wise. It's just so difficult to keep kids distanced. And that's why I think it's really important for them to wear the masks. Um, all right. So. You said something, though, that I think is important, and you said we can talk about it, but I'd like to. In terms of kids going back to school, especially young kids, let's talk about those benefits and, and the benefits versus the risk of in-person or at-home learning from a distance. Yeah, I mean, the a couple of the things that I think about just in general, even when it's a snow day or something, I mean, there are students that depend on coming to school because it's a safe space, it's a comfortable space, they have food, they have whatever it is they need, they can get the support that they need. So whenever you take and you have no access to that for an extended period of time, I mean, the impact on those students and on those families for that, that that's a big part of the consideration. And I know that in my area, and I know just everywhere that I've seen, a lot of schools and communities were kind of stepping up to make sure and reaching out to families and checking in and making sure they had food and all of that. So that's one big component of it um, for younger students too, just building those social skills and their language skills and all of that that they need whenever they're young. I mean, the research shows whenever they're in that environment, then they build those skills and they can have those interactions. So I totally understand why there's such a push to have students, especially the younger ones, be in school uh, because of those benefits. And like I mentioned before, there was a blog that I had read and I can't think of who who posted it right now, but it was a friend of Greg Bagby's and I read it and it talked about maybe having schedules where the younger students are able to be in school because you split them up if it's a bigger district and you use all the different buildings, the older students who can then maybe self-manage and be better with time management can help out with the younger siblings and maybe they can do a hybrid or they can do a fully distance learning schedule to make sure that those younger students have the support that they need. And so, I mean, it's beyond the education we're looking at. I mean, the physical well-being, the childcare, the meals that are provided, uh, social emotional learning. And of course, equity is another big part of the discussion too, uh, that comes into it. So 
I, I, I want to actually address that that equity piece. And before I do, I just want to say that um, my district has, like you said, uh, prioritized bringing back K through five students in person first and foremost before six through 12. I mentioned already before that my district has said right now they will have only up to 50% of staff and students in the building or not staff and students, staff is back regardless, but 50% of students in the building at any one given time. Um, however, they've said that they are going to start addressing the families who want to send K to five students back in person first. And then when they know those numbers, only then will they really be able to figure out class sizes and schedules for uh, secondary students. So um, it, it sounds like my district agrees with some of the things that you were saying in terms of let's make sure that our youngest sort of more more vulnerable population and that doesn't count um special ed students and and maybe english language learners because they're vulnerable as well those students are going to be in school full-time as long as they want to be um but k-5 to students first addressing the equity issue uh, i did find some i found a really great article on chalkbeat.org and, and again uh for the listeners sake to the best of our ability, we will try and post uh, the links to some of these resources in on the website, in the show notes. Uh, but this Chalkbeat article has lots of different surveys. Some were even done by Gallup, which, you know, obviously a, a really popular polling organization. This one addresses equity. It said, the headline here says remote learning had massive equity issues with engagement varying across racial and economic lines. And the statistic here is that uh, according to a survey that was done, 51% of teachers in high poverty schools reported that most of their students were participating daily. So that's about half of students who are in higher poverty or lower socioeconomic areas versus affluent schools where teachers reported that around eight or I should say 84 percent of teachers reported that their students were engaged in their learning and so I think right there whether it's inequities as far as technology and students aren't even able to access it or maybe family support or for some reason uh to to a degree of what is that like 33% difference there between affluent communities and and higher poverty communities students are clearly it is not equal where students are engaged and participating nearly as much in those areas of of higher poverty versus more affluent communities i mean it's just a fact yeah i think i, I think i read the same thing that you just mentioned because that the name of that sounds familiar i think i in the last couple of days, and it'll be it will be interesting to see now as we we didn't all have the experience in the spring, <laughs> nobody was better prepared. But now that we've had that experience, those conversations, everything that's happened over the course of the summer, different opportunities to learn, to connect, and hopefully hopefully to plan better, it would be interesting to see if a similar survey could be done and and to kind of track and trend and see okay, have we addressed those now that we're looking to. I mean, this could be something that goes on for a year or two. I was in a conversation a couple of weeks ago and uh, several comments were made that they thought that this could potentially be some form of school that we're going to see over the next year or two years, which is like, 
please know. <laughs> I would like it to go back to some extent to what we were doing, not saying that, oh, that was everything was great. I mean, we clearly need to make some changes and to, to focus on things. But the the whole idea of having to make all these shifts and everything, I would just like it to be for the students to be in the space and to be with our, our students in our classroom. So yeah, we'll see. And, you know, talking about students learning from home and, and, you know, basically, I think one of the the biggest issues too was, like you said, no one was really prepared back in March and April. I'm hoping that schools and districts are more prepared now. But the fact is, is that distance learning looked so different depending on where you lived. And I'm referring back to that Chalkbeat article here in another survey. It said that low income students, only 22% of teachers reported spending all or most of their time on new content compared to 43% of teachers in more affluent areas. And what that is addressing is the fact that some schools and districts said, you know what, if we have to go to distance learning, we're going to do it as if it was real instruction that would be happening in the classroom. But some other schools and districts who weren't as prepared um, or didn't have as much time or whatever the issue was, they said, we're going to have our students do more of a review. And, you know, it was either asynchronous or it was really done independently where it was left more up to the students and their families to direct how they were going to continue learning or in this case, reviewing what they had already learned. And uh, and I'm not sure that that's fair or, or equitable either. So, my hope is that if and when schools do return to some hybrid model or distance learning where students, a good number of their students are learning from home, you know, not even a good number, any students who are learning from home deserve the same quality education as students who are coming back in person. And that doesn't mean just reviewing concepts. That means learning new things, too. Yeah, it's uh it was tough because I know just even thinking back at the end of if my school year, I was just having class meetings that obviously they weren't mandatory because not all students had access at the same time. I was just glad to have students join in. But for the first two weeks, it was kind of like, just here's some work to do to kind of keep going with what we were already doing. And then it was to be new instruction for it to actually count for you know, the days in the school year. Now, new school year, I mean, we can't do the same thing. So we have to be intentional about planning new learning and different opportunities for our students, but start by making sure that they all have that access. And if not, if not necessarily joining in, I mean, you're, you're teaching class using whatever the platform is, some students may not be able to connect for whatever reason. So then you have to make sure that you're recording a video or you have office hours or whatever it is. I mean, we have to have Backup plans for every backup plan, I think, at this point. Uh, one other thing. Well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, 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 uh, th hold that thought because I think you just brought up something, too, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the difference kind of between asynchronous and synchronous. Like you mentioned, uh, if students are at home and they're sort of participating or expected to participate with what's happening in school, they might not be able to connect. I don't know if you're hearing this. I am hearing this where I live, and I think other districts are, are talking about it too, where the students who are at home doing distance learning, whether that's because they are, they're not scheduled to be in school in person or whether their, fam their parents have opted for them to stay at home, are going to be doing synchronous uh, Zooming where they're joining the instruction that's actually happening in person at school. 
And I got to be honest, I hate that idea for a couple of reasons. One, I think that, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, it's an invasion of privacy, um, or at least it, it brings up privacy issues for the students and the teachers who are in the room on the other end of the camera, because I don't know how you can guarantee who's actually watching on the other end. I think that's not necessarily safe. And technologically speaking, I don't know that you're going to be able to see or hear very well what's happening in the classroom. If you're sitting at home watching a Zoom about, you know, what's happening live in the classroom, I, I can't see that working out very well. I just can't. I know that is that's one of the things that I thought of first is in schools that are doing the hybrid and on the, if you have the two groups and students that are at home are supposed to be kind of watching you live stream or whatever. But then I think I did hear some schools saying that the teacher was going to teach the students in the classroom and have the camera set up just facing the teacher, which means that you're playing in the front of the classroom and talking to the students, but not able to answer questions for the students at home. Uh, and then some just said, you know what, I will just teach and then I will just record the lesson or I'll do a separate whatever. And so then if you're teaching five different courses throughout the day or seven different, whatever number it is, I mean, just the amount of work onto that, uh, it's a little overwhelming. So, but the privacy was the first thing that kind of went off in my head too, thinking about, okay, what about the students in the classroom or who's watching at home? And if that can be recorded and I mean, Mm -hmm. they're, unfortunately that's the things we have to think about, but I mean, that's just we would do that anyway. I mean, if we didn't, if we weren't in this situation and we're teaching in our classrooms, students could record us. It's been done with their phones. I mean, they're so fast. You never know. Uh, and just even in public, right? How many times anybody, whether you or I have done this or not, I will say I have not. <laughs> I'm going to put you out there, but you film, so you see something happening and you know, your phone is there and you tape it. And we see it uploaded on the social media all the time, right? So what makes it any different when we're in the classroom? You got to, I mean, you just have to kind of think about all of those concerns, not just for us, but for the students in that space too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just think it introduces lots of, uh, of privacy issues that I, I think asynchronous learning is the way to go. Like you said, you know, record pre-recorded videos or, um, you know, just having the camera on the teacher and recording what's happening in the classroom, maybe, but I don't know if that would be timely enough for, for students at home. Um, but I, I really, I would advocate personally for that, that asynchronous learning and, and it's going to be tough on teachers. You know, I think to expect teachers to plan for and deliver both in-person instruction and at-home learning basically simultaneously is a lot to ask and uh it's going to be tough you know and and i think teachers do have valid concerns uh regarding the fact that they're going to be teaching students who are in person and at home at the same time um but it might just be one of those things that we all need to come together and and help each other figure out uh at the start of the school year in my district i know they've given us a, a couple of more PD days at the, at the start of the year before students come back in person so that we can kind of wrap our heads around some of these things, logistically speaking. And, and hopefully we do. You know, I, I think that uh, I don't know that we can be as prepared as we really want to be uh, heading into the school year, but as prepared as possible for students to come back, whether it's in person or not. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know that there <laughs> there is a way to be adequately prepared because just 
just as an example, I think it was probably about a month ago or so, there was a group of teachers in New Jersey and I forget who shared it, but it was a list of questions that came up just about hybrid learning or just, I mean, any, whatever you want to call it. And I think just considerations. And when it started, there was probably somewhere around 70 or 80 questions on this list of things to consider. And each passing week, that list grew. And the last time I saw it probably was three weeks ago now. And it was well over 500 questions that came up that people just kept crowdsourcing questions. What questions do you have? And that's a lot of questions to answer. And I'm sure there are many more questions out there too. So it's not just a, a an easy decision to make. And just within the last week seeing, even I shared something on my Facebook page about, uh, it was an NPR, I think, article where it talked about the teachers that were interviewed and, and the ratio of those that didn't want to go back or were afraid to go back. And, and it was a, a story about why. And I shared it because I just like to share information so people can read it to get that different perspective. Because it's one thing if I if I express my, my fears, but when you see people from around the country and you read their stories and you can kind of like process that, but but there were some comments made back and forth about it. You know, teachers just get back into the classroom and you know, you need to be there and you're essential and the kids need to be in school. And I mean, they're all valid points and valid concerns. And uh, I mean, I don't know a teacher out there that doesn't want to be in the classroom. And I, I know a lot of students, even at the end of last school year, that told me, I will never again say that I don't want to go to school. I want to be in school. But it's it's beyond that. It's not all things that we can control. And I think it's just, there's just so much to put into it. And it's, it's not just you or me in that one group. It's all of the other people that we come in contact with and the other people that could be affected by it. And the one other thing I was going to say earlier was... Uh, just some of the research talking about those younger students and in, I think grades K through three, I mean, that's when they're using those social interactions. It's helping them to develop all those language skills and just that amount of what they're losing by not being together in that space. So we're teachers, we're creative. We have to figure out, okay, if we can't be together, what can we do to help to foster those interactions? And that's where the tech comes in. Is it a replacement? No, I mean, kind of right now it is in a sense, but uh, how can we work around that? But just the skills that they develop to interact and to regulate their behavior and to build you know, friendships and to understand other people. And uh, they struggle with distance learning. I know the younger students definitely do and the families do because they need to be there to support them. So I totally, totally get all of that. It's, uh, it's tough. Yeah. You know, you just hit on something, too, when you said like technology and how it's not really a replacement. Um, and I guess one of the things that I wanted to to discuss with you, too, as as we start to wrap up a little bit is like, where do we go from here? And we know, obviously, school reopening is a hot topic uh, and, and it varies, you know, in terms of the models that are being put out there and, and being implemented. Everything from what is it? The state of Florida, the governor said you have to go back in person. Uh, the president has said it. Many governors out there um, are actually here where I live. Our governor said, uh, I think on a Thursday or a Friday, everybody needs to go back in person. That's when all the districts needed to submit their plans. And then by Monday, he said, you know what, actually, uh, I'm going to leave it up to the districts. And that's why my that's when my my district decided to implement a hybrid model to start the year. Uh, but what I wanted to discuss with you is, let's say maybe a year, two years, three years down the road, how we think education might be impacted by this. And I think what you just said in terms of technology, 
leads me to to what I think is probably going to change the most, which is that we we can finally have such a great opportunity, you know, to put a positive spin on this, to really implement blended learning the way it's supposed to be implemented. And to take it a, a little bit further, I know for me as an instructional coach, one of the things that I'm already thinking about trying to concentrate a lot on with the teachers that I support in my school going back is personalized learning. How can we, whether it's through the use of technology or not, how can we really get our instruction to be as individualized and personal as possible for each student? And especially for us, we're going back in a hybrid model. We have up to half of the class size that we would normally have. So you're talking about at maximum, like 14 or 15 kids in a classroom. What better opportunity, in my opinion, to be able to use that as a foot in the door to better serve our students in a more individualized and personalized way? Yeah, I, I agree. And the the positive spin, I, I remember a couple of everything's a couple a couple of months ago. It might have been last week at this point. The way the time goes, I have no idea. But just thinking about you know the calling this like a big wake up call, just even for myself when the schools closed, I was so intent on just putting everything from my physical classroom space into the virtual space. I have to make everything fit. I have to use all the same things. And knowing the different tools and, and technologies that are out there for my classes that we've been using, that didn't put me in any better position because I'd never taught a class online, let alone a high school course. I've taken enough, but I started to think about, okay, what can we take from this? All right. One, I can reevaluate what I'm doing in my classroom. Two, I can look at the different technologies that are out there. What is the most important? Okay. Putting those connections in place, giving students an opportunity to build skills for the future, because who knows? I mean, they their job might be working remotely and they're going to need to know how to do things like Zoom meetings or <laughs> collaborate in a space. And so finding the positives in that, even with my juniors and seniors who I know were completely overwhelmed at the end of the year with AP courses and graduation and thinking about college. And I said, OK. This is not necessarily the way that you want to learn how to like balance your schedule and time management and be independent in your learning, but it's an opportunity for you to kind of build upon. So when you do go to college next year or you do get a job and you have to work remotely like this, you are much better prepared. But like you said, too, with uh, the smaller class sizes or having different spaces that we can create where we can really get to know the students and provide more specific opportunities for them in this kind of in learning environment, whatever that is, I think that is definitely something that we need to take advantage of. And even for teachers who were thinking about trying to use some technology or weren't really sure about blended learning, it's I, nothing like just having to dive right into it. But uh, I, I think regardless, we're all going to be better prepared now because we've had that experience and can at least look at ourselves and think, okay, what worked? What didn't work? Oh, it didn't work. I, I couldn't access some resources, my students, I didn't hear from, okay, how can I plan for that starting now? Like that should be my focus and my priority and then kind of build from that. Yeah. And kind of selfishly as an instructional coach, and I know you do coaching in your school and also consulting as well. Like uh, selfishly, I think that it may give schools a bit of a better idea of the importance of coaching and, and, PD and, and even personalizing PD for each teacher as well, because, um, you know, right now, 
one of the things we didn't really talk about in terms of school reopening until now is like we can't we're not going to be able to allow visitors in schools, which means that any kind of external consulting that normally would have taken place isn't. And so schools like mine are going to have to rely on people like me, our internal coaches to, to even more so, I, I think, support teachers, whether that's with blended learning or um, just catering their instruction to this whatever model our school is using, in my case, a hybrid model. And and again, I'm thinking personalized learning, right? How If we're going to have students spaced out, clearly small group instruction as we used to know it is kind of out of the question, but how can we still do it? How can we do it in a way that, um, you know, gets it to be where students are, students' real needs are being met? And I'm going to be honest, I would love to see this as an opportunity too, where we can work with teachers on, uh, highlighting students' strengths also versus just trying to, uh, you know, get them better with what they need support in. I think that's a, a bigger topic, a broader topic, uh, and maybe an episode for another day. But, you know, that's something where, where we need to get better at, 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 you know, at this point in our American school system is like we can't just uh, focus so much on students' deficiencies, but rather supporting what they're really excelling in as well. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, there was something you said there too, and I was going to go back to it. Now I can't think of, Oh, about, about having people come into schools. That is, I mean, in my school, we would have guest speakers come in for, there's like an entrepreneurial class or you name it. I mean, just to have people come in and fortunately we can use technology and kind of just expand that and bring people in from around the world. But then we go back to the original thing making sure students have access to that so they all can participate in whatever that learning experience is. So it's, uh, I don't know, it, it's interesting to see how things have evolved in the past week or two. And just even in Pennsylvania, just uh, last week, I think that the governor had said that he recommended that that no sports, no school sports until January. And now that's kind of been tabled a little bit to see what's going to happen. So Every day, there's just something new in the news, a new conversation happening, and sometimes a battle <laughs> with some of the conversations happening. But I don't know. I think it's important to just keep sharing information and just listening to different perspectives and uh, learn from each other. I think that's a perfect way to end. And, you know, that's that's kind of the reason why I wanted to do this episode in the first place is so that we can uh, not only address all the different vantage points and opinions and, and theories and whatever you want to call it that are out there, um, but just to, to hopefully, you know, advocate for, like you said, people just listening to each other and supporting each other. And, um, you know, just we're all in this together. You know, and and regardless of of where you sit in terms of what kind of stakeholder in this uh, school reopening plan you are, you're an educator, you're a parent, you're a board member, or some other government official. Um, we're we're all coming at it from different angles, but at the end of the day, it's the kids and their education that. Well, I, I should. I was going to say their education. Let me take that back. It's the kids and and everyone's safety and well being that comes first uh, with clearly a, a large lens on on what's best for them educationally speaking and i think you know uh re-energizing and reopening the economy should come well after that but i don't want to get too political here um Listen, again, I, I want to remind the listeners that uh, we'll post a, as much as we can in terms of the resources and the research that we used in our conversation in the show notes for this episode. Uh, you can find 
the uh, the video of this episode on YouTube and and the website is leaderoflearning.com slash devil's advocate. This is the first of, of many times that Rochelle and I will talk here every month. We're going to do this every month will be a different topic. And uh, again, We'll tackle trending topics and we'll come at them from as many angles as possible and supporting them with as much as much research and, uh, you know, the, the real hard hitting stuff as we can. It's not just us talking out of nowhere and grabbing things out of left field. But, uh, you know, I think I think this conversation was great. And I think moving forward, uh, all the conversations that we do have or that we will have will be very important for educators and maybe even non-educators to, to listen to in, in terms of understanding exactly what's happening out there and, and understanding, again, like you said a minute ago, just understanding that we need to uh, kind of be in on this together and, and supporting each other and just listening to what everyone has to say, regardless of, of how they feel about each issue. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> All right. Well, Rochelle, we did it. Episode one is in the books. I really appreciate you. And uh, thanks for thanks for being an awesome co-host. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here. All right. So, guys, you could find me on social media at. Oh, I just changed it. I this saw is, that. This is exciting. Yeah. So I wanted and it, it wasn't so much about touting myself with the new degree. It was more about getting my Twitter and my Instagram to, to be aligned now. So you can find me on social media at Dr underscore Krinus. Krinus is spelled K-R-E-I-N-E-S-S. Once again, the website is leaderoflearning.com. And more specifically for this series, it's leaderoflearning.com slash devil's advocate. And Rochelle, where can they find you? Uh, I'm pretty consistent with with everything. It's rdenae915. So R-D-E-N-E-915. It's all about being consistent. That's why I changed <laughs> mine recently. But anyway, we're out there. And again, uh, find us on Flipgrid if you want to uh, chime in on, on this conversation or any of our future conversations, or if you want to suggest topic ideas, we're here for you. We will listen. We will appreciate what you have to say, even if it is not aligned with our thoughts and feelings. Uh, again, I think that's a really awesome theme to end with here. We need to support each other and we need to listen to each other. So flipgrid.com slash devil's advocate. Until next time in September for Rochelle, I am Dr. Krinus saying thank you for listening and uh, hope you tune in again to next devil's advocate series, which will be out in September. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We encourage you to help contribute to the series. If you want to suggest topic ideas or comment on any of the conversations we have about trending topics in education, please participate on Flipgrid using the topic code Devil's Advocate or visiting flipgrid.com slash Devil's Advocate. If you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe to the Leader of Learning podcast on your favorite podcast app. Also, if you enjoy the content shared on the show, please recommend this podcast to others. I would also appreciate it if you'd leave a positive rating and review on iTunes or Podchaser. Links to leave ratings and reviews can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and see you again for another episode of The Devil's Advocate next month.